Chapter Thirteen of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Thirteen. At dawn on the twenty-third of March, a caravan left the capital of the Sultanate along the road by the shore. It was a regular caravan, such as the bargemen had never seen across the lands of Ilet Vilain. So he told Jewel, and Jewel was in no way surprised at it. In the caravan were a hundred Arabs and Hindus, and about as many beasts of burden. With numbers such as these, the perils of the journey were reduced to a minimum. No cause remaining for anxiety regarding land pirates, which under any circumstances would have been less dangerous than pirates of the sea. Among the natives were two or three financiers or merchants mentioned by the French agent. There was no ostentation about them, and they had no thoughts for anything but the business which took them to Sahar. The foreign element was represented by the three Frenchmen and the two Egyptians. The Egyptians had taken good care not to miss the departure of the caravan. Antifer had let them know that he was going to start in the morning, and they had made their preparations accordingly. Antifer, it need scarcely be said, did not trouble himself about Ben Omar and his clerk. It was their business to follow him, and not his to take care of them. He had made up his mind to appear as though he did not know them. When he saw them in the caravan, he did not even honor them with a salute, and under his menacing look the bargeman dared not turn his head toward them. The baggage animals were camels, mules, and asses. No vehicle was possible over this rough ground, where there was no definite road, and which was here and there a stretch of marsh. Two sturdy mules carried the uncle and his nephew. These had been obtained from the Muscat Jews, at a good price, of course but for no price had it been found possible to find a mule that would carry such a weight as Gildas Tregamine, and an animal of more strength and resistance had to be provided. "'Do you know that you are rather a nuisance?' said Captain Antifer, politely, as a mule after mule was tried in vain. "'What would you have, my friend? I'm not obliged to accompany you. Leave me at Muscat, where I will wait.' "'Never!' "'I cannot let myself be carried in several pieces.' Have you any objection to try a camel? asked Jewel. None at all, if you'll find a camel that will carry me. That is an idea, said Antifer. It would do very well on one of those camels. So justly called ships of the desert, answered Jewel. Then let me have a ship of the desert, said the accommodating bargeman. And thus it came about that Tregomain appeared on this occasion perched on top of a colossal specimen of one of these ruminants. This in no way displeased him. In his place, anybody else would have been as proud. If he had any feeling of this sort, he did not show it. Keeping himself busy in guiding his ship aright, and saving himself from as many useless lurches as possible. When the speed of the caravan increased, the animal's gait would probably become rather trying. But the bargeman was so well developed in the critical points as to be proof against discomfort of this nature. In the rear of the caravan rode Saouk on a quiet mule. Near him, and doing his best to keep up with him, was Ben Omar on a donkey so small that his feet almost touched the ground. Never would the notary have consented to bestride a mule. There was such a risk of his falling too far. Besides, these Arab mules are high-spirited and capricious, and require a strong hand to keep them under control. The caravan would accomplish its thirty-six miles a day with a rest of a couple hours at noon. In four days it would reach Sohar if nothing occurred to delay it. 
A journey of four days appeared interminable to Captain Antifer, spurred on with the desire to reach his island. But there his adventurous journey would be at an end. And yet why did he become more nervous and more anxious as he approached the decisive moment? His companions could not get a word out of him, and were reduced to talking between themselves. From the top of his camel, swaying from one hump to the other, the bargeman remarked to Jewel, Between you and me, do you believe in this treasure of Kamalik Pasha? Hmm, replied Jewel. It certainly seems to me rather fantastic. Suppose there isn't an island. If there isn't an island, there won't be a treasure, and my uncle will be like that famous Marseille captain who set off for Bourbon, and as he could not find Bourbon, returned to Marseille. It will be a terrible blow, Jewel, and I'm not sure that his brain will stand it. But the bargeman and his young friend did not talk like this in Annifer's hearing. What would have been the use of it? Nothing would have shaken the convictions of this obstinate man. Never did it enter his mind to doubt that there were diamonds and other jewels of enormous value buried by Kamalik Pasha in the island whose exact position he had been informed. All his anxiety was with regard to the difficulties he might meet within bringing his campaign to a successful close. The outward journey was relatively easy. Once at Sohar, they would procure a boat, discover the island, and dig up the three casks. There was nothing in that to trouble a resolute man like Antifer. What could be easier than to travel in this caravan, and what could be easier than to bring the treasure from the islet to Zahar? But to return to Muscat, these barrels of gold and precious stones would have to be carried on camelback like all the other goods along the coast. And how is this to be done without attracting the attention of the custom house, without having to pay enormous duties? Who could say but what the sultan might seize upon them and declare himself absolute proprietor of all the treasures discovered on his territories? Captain Antifer called it his island. But the island did not belong to him. Kamalik had not given it to him, and undoubtedly the island belonged to the Sultanate of Muscat. Here were reasons enough for perplexity, to say nothing of the difficulties of transport on the return, the shipping of the goods in the mailboat for Suez. What an absurd idea for the rich Egyptian to have buried his riches in an island in the Gulf of Oman. Were there not hundreds more, thousands more scattered over the seas, amid for instance, the innumerable islands of the Pacific, which were quite away from observation, which belonged to no one, where the legatee could have entered into possession without awaking any suspicion. But so it was, and it was impossible to change it. There was the island in the Gulf of Oman. What a pity it was that they could not tow it to St. Malo. That would have simplified matters considerably. Captain Antifer, then, was naturally anxious and his anxiety showed itself by paroxysms of internal rage. And a deplorable traveling companion he was, always muttering to himself, riding apart, and giving his mule many an unmerited cut with his whip. To speak the truth, it was a wonder that the two-patient animal did not kick and throw his rider. Jewel guessed what was troubling his uncle, but dared not say anything. Tregomain, from the height of his two-humped camel, was also aware of what was passing in his friend's mind. To reason with him was out of the question. All that could be done was to look at him and nod at each other significantly. The first day's journey was not productive of extreme fatigue. The temperature, however, was high. The climate of southern Arabia, just in the Tropic of Cancer, is very trying to Europeans. A burning wind, generally from the mountains, blew across a fiery sky. 
the sea breeze is powerless to overcome it. The heights of Jebel Akdan rise in the west like a screen, and appear to reflect the solar rays as if it were an immense receiver. And when the hot season is at its height, the nights are suffocating and sleep impossible. But the chief reason why there is not so much to endure in the first two days was that the caravan journeyed across the wooded plains that bordered the coast. There is nothing of the aridity of the desert about the environs of Muscat. Vegetation exists there in abundance. Fields of millet are under cultivation when the ground is dry, and fields of rice when the water pools ramify the liquid veins over the surface. And there is no lack of shade under the forest of banyans, and among the mimosas which produce gum arabic, the exportation of which is on a large scale. In the evening the camp was pitched on the bank of a small river, fed by the mountains to the westward. The animals were unharnessed and left to graze as they please, without even being hobbled, so accustomed are they to those regular halts. To mention only the personages in this story, the uncle and nephew left their mules grazing on the common pasture, where Saouk left his as soon as he arrived. The bargeman's camel knelt like a Mussulman at the hour of prayer, and Tregermain alighted, giving his mount a caress on the muzzle as he did so. Ben Omar's donkey pulled up suddenly, and, as the notary did not move as quickly as he might, it gave a jump and a kick, and sent him flying off over its tail. The notary fell full length with his face towards Mecca, but probably thought more of cursing his donkey than praying to Allah and his prophet. An uneventful night was passed on the usual halting ground of the caravans. A start was made as soon as it was light in the morning, and the advance towards Sohar resumed. The country became more open. Away to the horizon stretched vast plains where sand began to replace the herbage. It seemed like the Sahara, with all its inconveniences, scarcity of water, absence of shade, fatiguing traveling. For the Arabs, accustomed to these caravan marches, it was but an ordinary journey. They accomplished long distances in the very height of the summer during the most overwhelming temperatures, but how would the Europeans support this trial? We hasten to say that they did so without damage, even the bargemen, whose mass would have melted a few weeks later in the heat of the tropical sun. Rocked by the regular swing and elastic step of his camel, he slept in peace between the humps. Firmly seated, he seemed to be so like an integral part of the animal that there was no fear of his falling. He had now discovered that his obliging amount knew the difficulties of the road better than he did, and had given up attempting to guide it. The Charmante Amali did not travel more safely at the end of a tow rope along the rants. Although Jewel was on the road from Muscat to Sohar, his thoughts were far away in Breton town, in the house where Enogate was expecting him. The famous princess his uncle wished him to marry did not trouble him in the least. Never would he have another woman than his pretty cousin. Was there in all the world a duchess who could compare with her, even of the blood royal? No, and Camelik's millions could not alter this, even supposing that his adventure was not an Arabian Nights dream. Antifer was more anxious on the second day than on the first, and probably would be worse on the morrow. He was thinking all the time how he can get the casks away, and the more he thought of it, the less he liked it. And what would have been his apprehensions if he had known that in this very caravan he was being watched? Yes, there was a native there, aged about forty, with a handsome face, who, without awaking his suspicions, was keeping him under close scrutiny. The Suez steamer did not call once a fortnight at Muscat without the police taking a special interest in the event. Besides the tax he took on foreigners landing in his dominions, 
The Sultan indulged in quite an oriental curiosity with regards to Europeans who came to visit him. Nothing could be more natural than for him to find out the object of their presence in the country, and if they intended to stay. When, therefore, the three Frenchmen appeared on the quay and took up their quarters in the English hotel, the chief of the police did not hesitate to take them under his wise protection. The Muscat police are admirably organized as regards to the safety of the streets, and none the less so with regards to the surveillance of travelers by sea or land. They never asked if their papers are in order, for every scoundrel is sure to have them all right. Nor do they ask questions to which answers would be easy. But they never lose sight of the newcomers. They keep them under observation. They shadow them with a discretion, a reserve, and a tact which do justice to the intelligence of these Orientals. Hence it came about that Antifer was under the eye of an emissary of the police, whose order was to follow him wherever he went. Without ever asking a question, this policeman would succeed in finding out what these Europeans were doing in the Sultan. If they found themselves in difficulties among the people whose language they did not know, he would offer his services, and furnished with the information he obtained, the Sultan would prevent the departure of the visitors until nothing could be gained by keeping them any longer. This arrangement would seriously interfere with Captain Antifer's plan. To unearth a treasure of such value, to bring it to Muscat, to ship it for Suez, was difficult enough. But if His Highness was to know all about it, the difficulty would be insurmountable. Fortunately, Antifer did not know of this complication ahead. The present burden of his cares was almost too much for him. Never did he suspect that a policeman had his eye on him. Neither had his companions noticed among the caravan this quiet, discreet Arab who watches them without saying a word to them. But if this maneuver had escaped them, it had not escaped Souk. The so-called clerk of Ben Omar spoke Arabic, and had entered the conversation with several of the merchants going to Sohar. These people, to whom the policeman was not unknown, made no mystery about him. Souk suspected that the man was watching Antifer, and this made him uneasy. If he did not want Kamalik's millions to go to Antifer, he certainly did not want them to fall in the hands of the Sultan of Muscat. It is worth noting that the detective had no suspicions of the two Egyptians, and never supposed that they were bound on the same errand as the three Europeans. Travelers of their nationality often came to Muscat, and there was nothing to be feared from them, which shows that the police are not perfect, even in the Sultanate of His Highness. After a fatiguing day, broken by a midday halt, the caravan encamped at a little before sunrise by the side of a half-dry lagoon, one of the natural curiosities of these parts. Here was a tree under which the whole caravan could take shelter, a shelter that would have been much appreciated during the rest at noon. The rays of the sun could not have pierced the dome of these immense masses of foliage, extending like a veil fifteen feet above the ground. A tree such as I have never seen before, said Jewel, when his mule stopped of itself under the first branches. And such as you will probably never see again, said the bargeman, rising between the humps of his camel, which had just knelt down. What do you say, uncle? asked Jewel. The uncle said nothing, for the reason that he had seen nothing of that which had excited his nephew's surprise. I fancy, said Tregomain, that at St. Paul de Leon, in a corner of Brittany, we have a phenomenal vine which has some celebrity. Quite so, but it cannot be compared with this tree. No and the vine of St. Paul de Leon, extraordinary as it might be, would have been a mere shrub by the side of this vegetable giant. It was a banyan, a fig tree if you'd rather call it so, with a trunk that was at least a hundred feet in circumference. From this trunk, like a tower, rose an enormous tenfold ramification, the branches of which crossed and intercrossed, and forked and developed, 
until they covered more than an acre. An immense parasol against the solar rays, an immense umbrella against the showers, impenetrable to the fires as to the waters of the sky. If the bargeman had had the time, for he had the patience, he would have given himself the satisfaction of counting the branches of this banyan. How many were there? This could not but pique his curiosity. It was satisfied, and in this way. As he was examining the lower branches of the banyan and counting on his fingers, he heard behind him, Ten thousand. The words were pronounced with a strong Oriental accent. Jewel knew English and entered into conversation with the Arab who had given the information. The Arab was no other than the detective. Finding a good opportunity for entering into communication with them, he had taken advantage of it. In the course of conversation, he informed Jewel that he was employed as interpreter to the British legation at Muscat, and obligingly offered his services to the three Europeans. Jewel thanked the native and informed his uncle of this fortunate circumstance for the negotiations at Sohar. Good, good, said Antifer. Arrange with the man and tell him that we will pay him handsomely. On condition that we find something to pay him with, murmured the incredulous Tregamine. But if Jewel congratulated himself on this meeting, Saouk probably thought otherwise. To see the detective in communication with the Frenchman was to inspire him with a surfeit of anxiety, and he decided to watch the proceedings of his native very closely. And then if Ben Omar could find out whether they were going, if the voyage was near its end. Was this island in the Gulf of Oman, the Straits of Hormuz, or the Persian Gulf? Were they to seek for it along the Arabian coast, or on the Persian side? How were they to begin operations, and how long would these last? Was Antifer going to embark again at Sohar? As he had not done so at Muscat, it seemed as though the island must be beyond the Straits of Ormuz. Unless, by caravan, the journey was to be continued toward Charja, towards El Khalif, perhaps to Korank, the top of the Persian Gulf? Cruel uncertainties, bewildering hypotheses which ceaselessly excited Saouk, and invariably reacted on the notary. Is it my fault, he would repeat, if Mr. Antifer is so obstinate as to treat me like a stranger? Like a stranger? No, worse than that, like an intruder whose presence had been imposed on him by the testator. Ah, without that one percent. But was that one percent worth all these experiences? And when were they to end? Next day the caravan crossed an interminable plain, a sort of desert without an oasis. The fatigue was extreme during this day and the two that followed, fatigue due mainly to heat. The bargeman thought he was going to dissolve like one of those icebergs that drift from the northern seas to southern latitudes. Without exaggeration, he lost a tenth of his weight, to the evident satisfaction of his two-humped mount. During these days, the Arab, whose name was Salik, became more closely acquainted with Jewel, but we may be sure that the young captain maintained a prudent reserve, and did not betray any of the secrets of his uncle. The search for a town on the coast favorable for the establishment of a branch business that is to say, the fable already imagined for the benefit of the French agent at Muscat, did duty again for the pretended interpreter. The caravan entered Sahar during the afternoon of the 27th of March, after a journey of four days and a half. End of chapter 13